welcome to The Sacred, the podcast about understanding people different from ourselves and the things that we and they hold sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and in this episode, I had a lovely chat with Ian Dunt. Ian is editor of politics.co.uk, and he's previously worked for the Erotic Review and Pink News. He's a journalist who writes and speaks on issues around immigration, civil liberties, democracy, free speech and social justice, and is currently best known as a vocal critic of Brexit. We spoke about liberalism, his sacred value of freedom, his stint as a teenage Christian, and why he thinks you can be both opinionated and objective. Ian, I'm going to start with the big hairy question, which is the theme of the podcast. And uh, I still have not 15 episodes in worked out a quick way to explain it. But I'm going to ask you what you hold sacred. And I want you to bracket out kind of people you love, precious relationships, and think, is there a principle or a value or uh, a way of life that feels beyond rationality for you that you would defend in a very reflex instinctive way and I think the key thing to get at it is if someone offered you money to give it up that you would feel a bit disgusted by that that would feel a bit insulting or sacrilegious almost I mean I feel like I could answer the last part but not the first part so there are certainly principles I hold that no one could offer me any money to give up and that I think are at the foundation of of what there is when we talk about politics when we talk about society there's nothing to me that is beyond rationality um, and nothing I can't imagine any any way in which I ever would think anything would be. So the principle would be the sort of the, the freedom calculus, really, yeah. which is that the purpose of any sort of question in society and politics is to work out how do you increase the maximum amount and quality of freedom for the maximum number of people. And that almost everything else is just admin, really, you know, or fun. But in terms of politics, that's really at the core of any interesting political question whatsoever. But that is reason you know that stuff is based on you know it's got a bit of Kant in there it's got a little bit of Descartes in there it's got a great big dollop of John Stuart Mill and a little bit of Bentham you, you couldn't separate it from reason but then I, I can't comprehend why anything ever would be separated yeah. from reason so let's come back to the reason question but you framed that really interestingly because what I thought what you were getting towards was kind of pure utilitarianism but you used the word freedom rather than happiness or well-being so do you have a kind of catchy term for that that principle for you or that political philosophy essentially yeah, well, I, mean, I, I think this is sort of lib- i mean liberalism is this murky mercurial wishy-washy sort of word and i think probably quite a useful word for that i haven't always used it about myself actually partly because i didn't think i had enough specificity to it especially sort of post-brexit with trump and all of that kind of stuff becomes more and more useful because it's sort of a byword for for i'm, I'm opposing the close society the walls the borders that that idea of sort of tribal mentality in terms of where the calculus comes from, it's not pure Benthamism and it's not pure John Stuart Mill stuff either, really. I mean, Mill, there's some amazing passages in Mill when he's writing, where he, he sort of he has these principles and then occasionally he'll be like, but of course that doesn't mean you can walk around naked in the street. And, and he can't really justify. Yeah. Liberals always find themselves terrified by the, the logic of, of the, the principles that they're expanding. Um, and I think he's one of, he doesn't quite get there. There is no one person that puts this stuff out there. There's a little bit even in anarchist theory and sort of Bakunin and Kotopkin and stuff like that. You're, uh, I believe, a... Well, I found your biography on a libertarian speaker's website. Would you call yourself libertarian? I So, okay. I mean, I would sort of... Left-wing libertarian is a, is a thing that I use for a while. I, I kind of feel that that is now... When you say something like that, you end up 
asking, sort of answering so many questions. Nobody instinctively knows what it means. So I, I tend to sort of avoid it. The word anarchism is, is similarly very, very unhelpful because it's so associated with stuff that it has no connection to whatsoever. So I tend to go for liberal, which is a general feeling of you are motivated by increasing the freedom of the individual. To me, the crucial distinction between me and classic libertarians yeah. would be that I include economics in that. So I think that when you say the freedom of the individual, you have to include material benefits there. You can't just say that one guy, Bill Gates, gets to keep everything. Some other guy in a trailer park, you know, a homeless person on the street. We've increased all his political freedoms, but what privacy does the homeless man have? You know, that has to have some kind of material aspect to it. And I think once you go there, you go in something that's like left libertarianism or left liberalism or some forms of sort of, of, of soft anarchism, the very sort of right part of anarchism, which would be where I am. But... Very few people ask me this question. You can understand why I'm not going to go on Sky News and be like, well, hello, let me explain to you in contorted terms about Bakunin and, you know. Well, maybe that's one of the problems with our public debate, that actually showing our working and showing one being prepared to say, I'm not sure or I'm I'm not settled on this or I'm still working it out or this is where I'm leaning at the moment. And, you know, being able to talk in slightly more complex terms about our position, not just, you know, red or blue, left or right, but the 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 different positions on the multiple spectrums that we have might just help us understand each other a little bit better. Yeah, well, I mean, there's also the thing that most political journalists are unaware of any kind of abstract or theoretical basis to what they believe. They do believe. I mean, they like to think that they don't, that they're just the, the referee and there is the blues. Oh. Exactly. And, and for, it's basically just a great big football game, that yeah. politics for them. However, of course, they do hold many, many, many sort of uh, abstract assumptions, assumptions of conviction, assumptions of ideology. At the heart of all of that is usually the belief that in herd behavior, that really they assess themselves according to whether how many people are on the left of them, how many people are on the right, and the sensible position is wherever that middle bit is. You saw again, right after, if you remember the three months or four months after the Brexit vote, there was a real swarming feel around British politics where things were moving around and assumptions that previously were insane were considered middle of the road, conventional, very, very quickly indeed. And that's mostly because intellectually, most people work according to a herd mentality rather than anchoring themselves down in abstract principles, especially in Britain. You know, I mean, less so in somewhere like France, yeah. where we'd be having espresso shots and, you know, be by the river and we'd be pontificating for hours. But especially in Britain, where practicality and pragmatic judgment is valued above abstraction, that's very much the case. And also what we know, and we'll come back to the rationality question, but one of the themes that runs through this podcast is uh, the what anthropology are we working with? And I think... I'm fascinated. And actually, we've had some of the big studies uh, brought into question this week. But I'm fascinated by the kind of social psychology and the behavioural science emerging, which uh, really calls into question just how rational we are. And, uh, and I think should cause us all to reflect on how emotionally driven we are and how how social we are, how how driven we are by our peers, which makes a lot of sense. So to try and ground it in a more personal way, do you have a theory about why freedom is a sacred value for you? Not really. I Because I... if you just come back to me and say, well, obviously it's the best idea and I've chosen it through following the evidence, then... I, I, would, I would be quite tempted to ask the answer that way. <laughs> okay, so well, look, I mean, so you're not allowed to... To say that, I mean, there is a real victory of sort of, I'd say sort of like post-structural thought, which is most people that wouldn't know that word would still have it deeply embedded in how they think about things, that you are basically the product of where you come from and you're incapable of thinking beyond it. You are obviously completely impacted by where you come from, but it doesn't mean that you're incapable of trying to think rationally about things. 
Um, and it doesn't seem implausible to me that someone would have that there. Now, of course, there is an instinct. It was weird. I just done, so I do the Romaniacs podcast and I was walking with uh, my fellow host, Dorian Linsky, the other day through Soho when we finished doing it. And we were talking a lot about people that, um, commentators who you can predict act a certain way and those who you find it harder to predict. And they're a little bit right, a little bit left. And actually they, it feels like they are intellectually alive, like they're engaged in the things that's happening. So I'd say like the, the classic, I mean, the classic one would be something like Chris Hitchens would be like a classic example of that. But I would also say if you were to look on the right of someone that people on my side usually hate, that I think Manny Phillips is a pretty good example of that. Peter Oldborn is, is, a, is a pretty good example too. Um, and I think that for a lot of those people, you see a character type, which is usually that they don't really like being on the side of the majority. And I mean that not as a national way, but just around like any table. If everyone's agreeing, they usually have a bit that you can see them get a bit uncomfortable and want to kick a, kick away at that. So, of course, it must be true that there's a psychological underpinning to the manner in which people reason and the kind of conclusions that they come to. That must be there. But I also don't think that we can always just sort of say to someone, like kind of put them in a little fiefdom where they always had to come to that conclusion just by virtue of the kind of personality that they have. No, and no, I, I, I wouldn't want to do that. And I think what, what I'm sort of grasping towards in a very inexpert way is just a more holistic way of thinking about why we believe what we believe, why we come to the conclusions that we come to. Um, and in that evidence and reason uh, is an enormous part, but we, it's very, it's very easy, I think, with these studies to reflect it outwards onto other people and say, well, of course they believe that because X. Yeah. And what I'm trying to encourage us to do here at Theos in our kind of team explorations and, and me personally through these podcasts is reflect on what, what does my embeddedness, my kind of incarnate, you know, my, my story, my body, my gender, all of these things, what does it mean for why I believe what I believe and why I've come to it? And I'm just nosy enough to want to know that about <laughs> you. So let me ask something more concrete, which is tell me about the kind of the background to your childhood were there spiritual, religious, political, philosophical values in the air that formed you? So I was a Christian for a short period for about two, two and a half years, I think from the age of about 13 to 15 or so. Got incredibly sort of, um, so I got incredibly depressed when I was 13 in a massively pompous existential sort of way that I, I remember it very clearly actually what happened. So I was 13 or so years old. I remember counting, I was hating school at the time. And I was counting until the end of term, I think, or something. How many weeks was it? And then I thought, oh, how many until the end of the year so I can be on holiday? And I thought, how many until the end of school? And then I remember sort of thinking like, well, what next? Like, what's the point? <laughs> and that really, whatever that had a massive crippling effect on my 13 year old yeah. self. I went into a very bleak period, which I never actually suffered from again. And that period really only ended because I went to a Christian summer camp. I got dragged along by a friend of mine, Ali, who'd somehow been signed up and whose mum, I think, had called my mum and said he doesn't want to go on his own. Would, would he mind going? And it was sold as this whole, you know, archery and campfires and God knows what, all the, the bog standard sort of summer camp stuff. And they would sort of take you off for these little walks, five minute walks in the afternoon, um, one-on-one ones. And they did an absolute, I mean, I can't remember any of the stuff they did, but they were very, very good at it. And they're probably very good at that age of sort of speaking in that way to these kind of kids. But it certainly gave me a sense of meaning and purpose. And I remember very much jumping onto that stuff, sort of like, you know, like the life raft in the storm sort of stuff. And that lasted me for about two, two and a half years, really. I was pretty dreadful with it as well, full of certainty. So... I remember saying awful, th I remember sort of saying things like, you know, people that have sex before marriage will go to hell. I was a bit fire and brimstone-y. And you didn't come from a Christian family? That must have been a shock. I, yeah, so I think my uh, my dad, as far as I know, I don't think he's ever <laughs> cares about any of this stuff. I don't think he's ever really thought about the God stuff at all. My mum is Guatemalan. She comes uh, from a much more Catholic culture. 
So the family there is split into two uh, very, very big Latino family, you know, sort of countless aunties and uncles and cousins, blah, 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 where there's a right and a left of the family. And, uh, you know, the left part is secular and the right part is quite religious. So actually, my mum is, is atheist, um, but probably calls herself Catholic in a more... Um, identity sort of way in a way that lots of sort of especially young women that I meet in London call themselves Muslims and when you ask about their faith they don't actually have any faith but it's a sort of solidarity with their with their group I mean I, I think I, you know I gradually did sort of feel that it, it was complete nonsense um that was partly just sort of thinking through my sort of attitude toward, towards the god stuff it didn't make a lot of sense I imagine bands you know when you're 15 and 16 pretty much the most influential sort of items there are. I was listening to a lot of music that was, you know, quite explicitly anti-religious. So things like Manor Street Preachers and uh, yeah, Rage Against the Machine and things like that, where it was quite hard to maintain in the face of this stuff, which is frankly much cooler. Um, and I went sort of head and shoulders right into sort of mar proper Marxist communism and replaced them almost like for like with exactly the same fire and brimstone manner, the exact same levels of complete certainty, the exact same judgmentalism, but more laughable in this case, of course, because I lived in a lovely house in Hampshire with my dad driving a jag <laughs> that had to be left like in an alleyway so no one in the Socialist Workers' Party meeting would see. <laughs> you know, I mean, just preposterous nonsense. Um, and really, I stuck with that for about three years in that way. And it wasn't until I was about 18 where a series of things started to cure me of my absolute need for sort of moral and kind of metaphysical uh, certainty, for, for, for proper sort of primary colour certainty. Do you think that experience of uh, identifying as a Christian for a few years has shaped how you feel about religion now? It's funny, I'm not too cross about religion. I definitely was when I was, uh, when I was a little commie. I am not really now because I think it's quite hard to get cross, with, especially with the Church of England, because they're so harmless. I mean, they just, they are. It's, I think it's Kingsley Amos. No, it was Martin Amos, whose definition reads, it said, they just, they ask nothing of you. And, so, and on that basis, it, it's very hard to get cross, I find, about religion. And I'm always a bit baffled by, by my sort of, you know, secular friends and, you know, liberals tend to be very, very atheistic and some of them get very cross about religion. And I have to say, I've never really emotionally connected with that. However, my uncle uh, died about two, three years ago. He was a big, big influence on my mum, who was obviously then a big, big influence on me, gave a lot of the politics. Probably my political identity wouldn't be there. Hugely impressive man, atheist, the first immigrant from my family to go to the US, um, sort of a painter and an architect and business, hugely impressive bloke. Always an atheist, always hated the church. And as soon as he died, there was a lot of family pressure all of a sudden put for him to have the full Catholic funeral. Yeah. And I sort of flew over, which, which was eventually buckled and, and uh, capitulated to. Mostly because the argument is, look, if he's right, it doesn't matter. And if he's wrong, then we've just made sure he gets into heaven in the end. So, and, and for people I'm that not sure that's how it works. <laughs> no, I don't think it is either. But, but also, you know, Latin American Catholicism is extremely superstitious and extremely transactional. So, you know, also, I mean, I would, frankly, it's, you know, there's a there's a lot of worshipping of idols going on in the houses of my tears of my aunties in Latin America. If you lose something, you pick up this saint and you carry him with you until you find your mobile phone. It's preposterous, but but it goes on. Um, and I got there and it's this huge church. I hadn't been in a Catholic church for a really long time. Um, well, I was baptised Catholic. And the chanting back and forth, I have to say, felt much more cult-like and oppressive to me than any of the, you know, twee vicar in, in a sort of, you know, English country church. And then the complete whitewashing of his personality, of who he was in the face of just a, basically a, a slab of religious content on the on sort of putting a full stop on his life. 
absolutely outraged me. I mean, I hadn't been that cross about religion since I was sort of 16 years old, you know, jumping up and down in my bedroom to rage against the machine. It sent me right back. I was unbelievably cross and it faded after a while, but it did sort of remind me that even for someone of my sort of temperament of religion is really not such a bad thing. When you work a lot in um, sort of asylum and refugee stories, you see that the church is very often the only place that is helping with this stuff. What a bunch of supposedly, you know, holier than thou lefty sort of liberals do absolutely nothing to help with the situation. Even in that sort of temperament, I, I, did find myself getting very, very cross about religion for a short period before it faded away with the twee nature of English society once again. It's uh, And obviously we fall into this trap a lot, but because we're trying to talk publicly rather than in kind of academic ivory towers, but part of the problem is the word religion is almost no use as a explanatory category. Mm. You know, uh, my colleague Nick often says anything that can technically encompass both ISIS and the Quakers has probably lost its explanatory <laughs> power, you know. Um, so... One of the things we're trying to do is kind of one talk as talk as specifically and as partic- particularly as we can, or certainly I am, so that you're not trying to talk on behalf of a, an enormous thing um, too much, but also to just acknowledge that complexity. And and interestingly, and Nick's really developing this uh, this work, and um, obviously John Gray is doing it as well. I think there's a really interesting thing about atheism being much more. Less, much less monolithic than we think and the complexity of that there. Nick wrote a book called The Origin of the Species about atheisms, basically different different atheisms that grow up in different political climates in reaction to the political yeah. ecosystem. So you had your Christian phase, you had your middle-class communist phase, and then you went on to study philosophy at university. What made you pick that? Uh, drugs. I started doing drugs, which helped at the beginning. I mean, they, they, they're they a disaster in the end because they made me study philosophy for university. And philosophy is actually very, very boring. You do some acid and you sit around, is the table really there? And before you know it, you're studying formal logic and UCL and it's really dreary and tedious and has no application to the real world. And that is the, the actual punishment for drug use. It's not, there's no moral punishment. You lose three years to extraordinary tedium. But they were useful at the beginning and, and really that, that tilt from communism, the cure for sort of being wanting to be certain about things. Okay, but uh, sort of three, three things. I mean, one of them was discovering sort of anarchism within communism, which is a much, I left it pretty quickly, but it was a much breezier, more open approach to things and gave you a bit of a convey about out of the certainty. Um, another one was Ascent of Man by um, uh, Bronowski, which is a famous sort of BBC 1970s series in a book. There's a chapter there on uncertainty, which is one of the most, it's one of the most affecting hours of TV, brilliant chapter in his book, really about the inability to ever know anything, certainly, and the kind of ways in which man behaves when he does, thinks that he does know. It ends with him um, in Auschwitz, you know, surrounded in the swamp, which is where the remains of his ancestors were. And he said, this is how man behaves when he believes he has absolute knowledge. And all of that stuff was very helpful. The the third, and, and really sort of knocked me for six, really. The third part was a drug called demethyltryptamine, which is an extremely robust psychedelic, um, which really sort of put me in my place in terms of making me think, what could I realistically know about this world using the kind of apparatus that I have in my head? And the answer is very, very little indeed. You know, you, you, you basically, you, you need a bit of existential modesty when it comes to the kind of questions that you might think about what is the purpose of life and blah, blah, blah. So all of those things sort of cured it. And then by that point, you know, you can go off and, and waste your life for three years doing philosophy, wondering what on earth it is you're going to do with your life and not have that driving that kind of the existential life raft of you must have certainty in all of your intellectual and your moral and your spiritual judgments just in order to not feel the bleak panic of, oh my God, what is the point of life and and blah, blah, blah. But it took all all until that time to come to an answer to the question that I was asking myself when I was 13 of how long until term ends. That's really interesting. We've had a previous guest called Ronan and we had a a long conversation about psychedelics and he is quite passionate about their, um, the potential for them to be force for good in terms of 
making people more open and uh, spiritual and emotional intelligence, really. Is it something that you still use or feel can be a, a positive force or would you be more sceptical? Very, very occasionally because there isn't much time and, you know, meh. You do not need to do the same level of exploration that you very often do when you're sort of 17 years old. But still occasionally on a nice summer's day with the right thing and with the right people, that can be very, very nice. You need to, all of those old warnings apply if you need to make sure you're with the right people, a small group, people that you really trust in, a, in an environment that is conducive to it. Like, you know, when it's the middle of the night and you're all in the house, that is a terrible idea. You can do the stuff, small amount, be with people you trust and go for a walk in the park. And you may discover things about yourself that you otherwise wouldn't have known. You may be able to break down stuff. Some of the research... And this even goes as far as ketamine, although ketamine is a very misused drug. People don't understand the correct way to approach it. It can be very, very helpful. We think the same with um, ecstasy as well um, in terms of therapy and stuff like that. There are undoubtedly uses to these things. And I think we will look back on this as a sort of dark ages of our approach towards these substances. They are not, as many drug advocates act, like this great stairway to greater enlightenment. They're not. I mean, you know, there needs an awful lot of sober assessment um, and modesty around them. But nevertheless, they can be a role. And, and it's obviously completely absurd, the idea that we wouldn't even be touching these things. When David Nutt did his assessment of drug harms, magic mushrooms are right at the bottom of the list of harms. And actually can produce, you know, if nothing else, some really quite fun times with your friends and at best, a complete reassessment of the way that you want to live your life. We're going to take a brief break to catch up with what's going on with the Theos team. with Simon Perfect in the Theos office and Simon is our main education researcher and has been doing a long project on RE and a blog series which should be up by the time that you hear this. Simon, uh, what are the problems facing RE as a curriculum subject in the UK? So I think we can see there are three major challenges facing RE today. One of the first one uh, concerns recruitment of sufficiently qualified RE teachers. What we're seeing at the moment from some of the research that's been come out by NATRE, which is the National Association of Teachers of RE, is that 50, uh, 56% of teachers of RE in secondary schools have no relevant post-A-level qualifications and no kind of relevant qualifications to do with RE, but they are the teachers of, of RE in our schools. And that and that compares to about t- uh, 28% for, hi- for teachers of history. So we can see that the the people teaching RE on the ground, there's a question about how many of them are suitably qualified for what they're doing. The second challenge is that um, in a lot of schools, not enough time is dedicated to RE in the curriculum. Part of that is because of structural factors. So, for example, RE was excluded from the English Baccalaureate, the EBAC, which is a performance indicator in schools. And that has meant that head teachers have been disinclined to prioritise time for RE over other subjects. But even uh, even more problematically, there are a lot of schools, uh, secondary schools in particular, that simply don't comply with the legal requirement to provide RE to all pupils in the school. 28% of secondary schools in England or Wales give no dedicated time to RE, so they're failing to meet their legal requirement. And that comes to about uh, 800,000 pupils across the country who are not receiving their legal requirement for RE. And I think that's highly problematic. I'm just going to stop you there because uh, many of our listeners won't be teachers or parents or students. I might be thinking, uh, why does this matter to me? Why should I be interested? I think this matters because 
If we want our children to uh, be able to understand the modern world, understand the conflicts going on in the modern world and the the issues uh, driving politics in the modern world today, but also be able to understand their neighbours better in our highly diverse and multicultural society, we really need to have them uh, well-educated in understanding the different diverse uh, religions and beliefs that they're going to be encountering. It's not just a. It's not just a question of being able to uh, debate the nature of, of of humanity. Is human nature good or bad? Although that is a very worthwhile question in itself. There's a there's a much more simple question about why does my neighbour uh, believe the way they what they believe? Why do they practice the way they do? How can I learn to uh, live alongside them uh, amicably and if we're if we're having eight hundred thousand pupils who who are not getting who are not getting space in their curriculum time for that kind of education, then I think we're in a, a big a big problem. So, what might be some of the uh, ways we could go about fixing this problem? There have been a number of initiatives recently that are calling for reform of RE. Uh, a major one is is the Commission on Religious Education, which was set up by the RE Council of England and Wales. They published an interim report September last year, and their final report is coming out later on in this year. And they're making a number of recommendations to policymakers about how do they, how should the structures of RE be changed. What I think uh, everyday people who aren't policymakers can do is to try to understand some of these kind of debates. We're publishing a blog series uh, that will be talking about some of these issues, understand why these are important, and then you could even go and see, is your school where your, where your children are going, do they, are they complying with their legal requirement to, to provide RE to everybody in the school? Is there an, is there a, an option for pupils in each key stage uh, to be able to take RE? If not, then you, you, you know that your school is not sufficiently complying with the law. We need people in the public to be adding pressure to this movement for reform now to encourage policymakers to see that, yes, the time is right to make some changes to RE. The time is right to secure RE for the future. Simon, thank you so much for talking to me. Now back to our conversation. It strikes me that we're in an interesting moment in terms of... I hesitate to say this because it is so deeply simplistic as to be probably false, but an interesting moment in terms of our society's attitudes towards the big questions of meaning. It feels to me like religion, organised religion used to be a kind of safe space to ask those questions because there was kind of social conformity around it. There were institutions and structures and you could come and there has been kind of wholesale rejection of that, particularly with a younger generation coming through. Not and. Obviously, that's, there's a more complex picture there as well. But it strikes me that for a lot of people who, for I think some quite bad reasons, but also some good reasons, would not ever consider looking to religion for answers to the questions of meaning, are looking to psychedelics, to mindfulness, to, you know, the less nonsense ends of the kind of wellness and well-being phenomena. This, this sense of, you know, and I don't use neoliberalism as a kind of catch-all boo word in in the, in the sense that many people do, but certainly I kind of the the current situation with capitalism, yeah. the 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 story we've been told about what a good life looks like, the answer to what is a good life, if you listen hard to at least the kind of media buzz, the kind of background noise is be hot, earn some money, uh, you know, get some Instagram followers, buy a house. It's quite banal, isn't it? <laughs> like most of us think, mm, really, is that really the answer? Uh, 
so one of my questions is, um, if religion or if Christianity in particular could help bust some of these myths that I think people have, one about, you know, it needing to be about certainty or best of it, the best of these wonderful ideas and wonderful communities that I, I, I feel very um, nourished by, could that be one of the options for people searching for answers to their meaning? Or do you feel like it's too far gone? No, that's great. I, look, I, so on the spiritual level, I, I, I never have believed that religion has any answers to give. I believe that it posits something that ultimately, you know, there is no visible God. Someone posits that there is. That seems like a completely unnecessarily imaginative response to the, to the things that we see around us. For us, on a spiritual level, I don't really believe that it that it does have any answers yeah. to to give. You mean you mean on a metaphysical level, on a kind of yeah, maybe it's clearer if if I say what where I think it does work, which is um by it gives you a space outside of capitalism to have a form of community. I remember walk, I would always there'd be whenever I sort of had had like a late night and slept over you know ended up staying over at a friend's house or something on the Sunday morning when I was walking home I used to walk by this uh, church so it had this huge sort of Afro Caribbean congregation everyone wearing their finest finest clothes and clearly able to talk to their neighbours in a way that is very hard the rest of the time. There was this one sort of old vicar that looked like he was very, very happy about immigration, that he existed because if not, he wouldn't have a congregation. Um, And it clearly provided a place that people were able to exist outside of capitalism, outside of the fact that they're consumers, essentially, or producers, i.e. workers, you know, at work. Even when I would go to sort of trade union meetings at the NEJ, you'd still be making decisions together, but it was still your part of a functioning unit. It wasn't just a space for talking. I weirdly suspect that some of the strength of feeling that people have around the NHS is a feeling as soon as they walk in the building that they're outside of capitalism and that there's a breathing space there. And I suspect, and this is really wishy-washy, that some of the obvious psychological damage that America has as a nation comes from its lack of those spaces outside of a sort of church. So people rely on a McDonald's play area as their sort of, you know, space. You've basically got to eat fake meat in order to be able to find a space, you know, where you can chill. And I think for that, it it does offer something. Now, there's limited success, I have to confess, for secularists trying to provide the same thing. There are some attempts, like you look at Conway Hall, for instance, which tries to replicate sort of the Sunday sermon um, in a humanist way and just having interesting people come in and then sort of and, and talk. But I can't pretend that they have anything like the success that religion has at it. And that in that space, I think it can do good. And it also can clearly do good in terms of what it does for, for the poor and the needy. I, re- I mentioned refugees earlier. I can't stress enough how catastrophic the provisions for asylum seekers refugees would be in this country if it wasn't for the church and how little there is of that coming from my side. On the spiritual side, I, I, I just don't see it because to me, because I won't give up on reason, it is innately false. And so there's no... It, at best, it's it's a cul-de-sac. I suppose you could call it like a placebo at best, but that doesn't seem like a very satisfying spiritual answer to me. Um, I really want to go after the reason thing, but I think it's a longer conversation in the pub <laughs> with a beer, if it's all right. Can we come back to it? Because we're supposed to be talking about public debates. So tell me, um, as far as you can without yet mentioning Brexit, what is the current state of our public debates and why are we where we are? Um, it's in a very, very, very bad state, as bad as it's ever been in my life, if my lifetime. And I think that's primarily about the victory of identity politics over liberalism, really. And that's on the right and the left. On the left, you see a, a, a consistent, constant demand of a sort of ownership of group, whether that's by gender or race or religion, such as sort of protected level. There is no critique, really, of how someone claims to represent that group in any way, or the fact that the members of that group would be distinct from one another. 
on the right, much more dangerously because it's aimed towards dominant people rather than at least on the left. You can say that well, this is actually trying to help more marginalised people. Um, you see it basically typically in the form of the nation state, occasionally in the form of religion as well. And this is obviously sort of Trump and Orban and, and La Liga in, in Italy. Um, and in each case, they give up on the individual. So not only does the freedom calculus go, but any sense that each individual has their own rights, that each individual has their own character, their own personality is gone. Instead, you are completely defined by virtue of the group that you belong to. This is the complete triumph of identity politics. And it happened because liberals had a complete crisis of confidence about how they made their arguments, about how they projected themselves. They failed to live up to their own values in making sure that marginalised members of communities were looked after. They failed to make the case. Again, they were petrified by the radicalism of their own ideology, really, as they always have been throughout history, to make the full case for where liberalism leads and the kind of society that it should see. And on that basis, we've ended up here, you know, with the most grotesque debate in Britain, appalling, just the most appalling politics in, in the US. Going towards, you know, when you look at what's going on with trade wars at the moment, you know, without wanting to sound like it's hyperbole or something, this is the kind of thing that you always see before people really start having wars. They always start like this with the trade war bit, trade war, trade war, trade war, trade war, and then things get worse. That's not to say that it has to follow. It's to say that when you see this kind of behavior, you do everything you can to stop it exactly where it is right there. And you see the same with the rise in anti-Semitism. All of these are part of the same attitude, which is ID politics. And, um... How do you self-reflect on your own role in the public debate? Because uh, I'm, I'm, you are known for those listeners who haven't come across you as a vocal Remainer, but uh, also someone who is quite impassioned online. And I, I sometimes think, oh, I hope Ian's all right. Like, how does he sustain? <laughs> people, sustain? people always say that to me when how, they see me. How does he sustain this level of outrage, you know? <laughs> it's mostly alcohol. Uh, so what's your self-care strategy, Ian? Do you, because uh, journalists have a responsibility anyway. Mm. People like you who have become quite prominent spokespeople on one side, and I asked Claire Fox this and I've asked Giles Fraser this, who are prominent Brexiteers, is their own contribution to making sure those debates are as healthy as possible. So it's funny, and I think it sounds a bit schizophrenic, but technology sort of allows me to have two roles at the same time. So the first one is genuinely trying to do some some sense of public service in terms of explaining how things work in ways that could be understood by almost anyone in the time they have to give. The time they have to give bit is crucial. There was no, I remember when I was first getting into journalism, there was an article by some Guardian journalist. And he just said, you're not writing War and Peace. You're writing for a bloke on the bus late for work, has to get off, you barely have his attention, you better quickly get that information into his head. And that idea of simple language, 15 seconds, explain it to them as best you can. In the debate that we're in right now with Brexit is mostly people trying to cover up the truth about things. And they'll do that by using very technical jargon and complicated words where they'll fight against reducing it to simple terms. So part of it is to try and use that language and try to explain things in a way that is comprehensible. Another part then to me is also to stand up for liberalism um, and to do that in a passionate way to say like, not only is immigration okay and not just economically okay, it is a positive thing. It is good for us, for all of us, not just for immigrants um, and not just economically either. It's good for us sort of almost aesthetically and culturally and in a much richer, more wholesome sort of way in a more nutritious way. Um, and the same for diversity in general, the argument against walls and for sharing. It, it was the case, that you, and society still kind of says you can't be one and the other. You're not allowed to do them both. I kind of think the internet allows you to, to actually do both. To get away from that, you're either the BBC or you're a comment writer, you know, for the Daily Mail or the Guardian or whatever. You can, the blog form, it's a, it's a really disparaged word, blog, included by most people that write them, um, because, it, because it's usually used by journalists to go, well, you're crap, you work on the internet and anything that's on the internet must be bad. So I think that that offers 
a chance to do that. It's a much more informal space. You can use much more conversational language as if you're in the pub rather than talking down to people. The fact that there is a potential response to you online makes it more egalitarian in that way. And you can say, these are my principles. I have not hid them from you. I have made them as clear as possible. Here is the information. You can check that information out as much as you like and see whether you trust me. And as long as you just have to stand by your record in terms of the public information part, as long as you make sure what you're putting out is accurate, you, you, know, you can still play both roles. But I do admit that it, it is an odd mixture and one that wasn't really previously possible and I'm not entirely convinced it is now. Uh, it's, it's encouraging for me to hear you say that because our instinct has always been as a think tank that there is seen as this kind of special category that the only people that can talk about religion are the ones that apparently have no opinions on it. You know, that you would say that you're a Christian or you would say that and the opposite. And it's only these, uh, you know, apparently objective academics who can be trusted. And our instinct is not just about religion, but about about everything. There is no view from nowhere. There is no one who does not have some kind of bundle of bias Mm. inside them and some set of lenses that all you can do to build trust is be honest and transparent about where you're coming from and then try and be as rigorous and as careful and as excellent as you can. So it's it's one of the difficult things about this job is running a Christian think tank. Some people think those two things can't go together. Um, and, I, and I'm and i often saying, yes, we're from a Christian perspective, but we also, we're trying to be the place you come to to find out what's going on. And when Christianity, there's a bad news story, we'll tell that as well. And we won't hide our data and all those kind of things. And I do think that's where the world's moving because because personality is a bigger deal and for some good reasons as well as some bad reasons. People are entitled to be treated as intelligent. And as long as you're straight up about where stuff is coming from and by being a Christian think tank, you kind of got that bit covered, you know? I just feel that you're in you're entitled to give them the information as you see it yeah. with that caveat. The point the point where people start to conceal is is the dangerous moment, but I just don't know. I mean it's like if you're writing a, you know, common piece or a blog, I don't know who does it, it's so foolish to dodge the argument. It's much better to take it and at least get to deal with it there and to go, "Well, look, here it is. This is the reason that I don't think that this is a knockout blow or whatever." You know, yeah. that this is why to put it in context, there are other things that are important. Sometimes you might end up with a piece that's a bit wishy-washy on the one hand this, on the one hand that. Yeah. But ultimately, you're going to come to a conclusion at the end of that. And that puts it within the context. So that as long as the behaviour is rigorous and credible, yeah. it does not seem to me that there is a contradiction between holding an opinion and still having an objective view on it, even if you're not balanced. Our problem as a society has been an emphasis on balance, which is completely fake, completely nonsense, yeah. completely pointless and banal. I'm trying to work out if I agree with you on that. But I, um, <laughs> I, I do think that... I understand the reasons why people are hesitant to show their cards and it is because of this deep tribalism in the debate. And I feel it that sometimes I want to kind of have five minutes with someone before they know I'm from a Christian think tank so they can look me in the eyes and see me as a human being and have the like fruit loop alert calm down a bit and then they might be able to hear what I'm saying. So the problem isn't, I think, uh, that people hold opinions and have perspectives and are trying to do rigorous work in whatever field they're in. It's that we naturally trust people who seem like us and I'm trying to really push us and with this podcast, help people to follow people that they disagree with, kind of be on the alert that the truth might come from someone who doesn't look sound like you, who you naturally are a bit irritated by, you know, who you have political allergies to. But actually, that's quite exhausting to keep challenging your own allegiances. I think that's part of at least part of the answer for how we better engage. And I think that that must be true. I have to say, I also feel that for my own side, for liberals, they have a, a like 
they have done so much since the Brexit vote. I saw so much. Oh, can't we, you know, go out? We've got to understand how all these left behind voters feel to the point where, you know, I was constantly being told for months on end to sympathize with and try and understand the concerns of people who are telling my friends to get out the country. And I just have to realize, sort of like, well, kind of no fuck you. I have to say like, there's, there's definitely a limit on my empathy and my openness to, to the intellectual investigation on that front. And I think I'd reached it and not enough of a, a backbone on liberals to understand a fundamental... I'm slightly moving away from your thing. I know liberalism is not sort of equivalent on it. Liberalism provides the freedom for almost everyone to pursue their own strand of thought and activity. Almost no other system of politics provides that thing because it goes for each individual to maximise their freedom. Now, you can join whatever group you want and go do whatever you like. However, you do not get to interfere with other people. Now, as soon as that is lost you suddenly do get to interfere with other people. Suddenly, you know, you can start chucking uh, immigrants in detention centres. Suddenly, you start to get to say to married couples that they can't live together because one of them doesn't earn enough money. Like the most, just the poverty of the morality of that kind of idea. Suddenly you get to tell people what they can and can't put inside of their body. All of the limitations on behaviour, or, or of course in the religious front, was the, the lunacy of what was going on in France under the name of secularism, of basically forcing women to disrobe on a beach from what they were wearing. It's sort of a like, sort of state-sanctioned sexual assault, essentially. That is what happens when you give up on liberalism. And so on that, I do, of course, understand we need to go and we do need to understand other people's points of views. I try to do the same thing as much as I get cross. I at least think before you unfollow, just take five minutes and see whether you know you can do it. I get that. But also I want liberals to have more confidence in themselves because when they have less confidence in themselves, it is the poorer and the marginalised who actually tend to suffer rather than those who hold the convictions that would otherwise protect them. So let's talk about a worked example um, uh, uh, because I know you've spoken about it around Tim Farron because uh, he gave an annual lecture, a Theos annual lecture last year, which which really triggered, I think, some really an interesting range of reactions about what liberalism is and who gets to speak for it and who gets to defend it and how we use the word. Um, and different people on the podcast have, have hated what he said and other people have said some of it was good. But uh, he, he basically said, if liberalism is to survive, I need to be able to hold a view that is really unpalatable for a lot of people. Mm. He's never obviously been entirely explicit about what that view is, but I think everyone gets the impression that there is at least some ambivalence towards um, homosexual sex in there. Um, as a liberal, uh, what do you think about that? Are there some views that just should not be held in high office, given where society is now? Or where do we go forward? No, I agreed uh, with Tim Farron. Um, I, I mean, look, to be clear, he he ran as Lib Dem leader on the basis of I'm a good salesman, I can take this to the public order that. And by the time you've had an entire election campaign that should be about Brexit with him talking about gay sex, you kind of think it's quite hard to make that proposition. So I, I'm not, on point of competence in the role, I'm not entirely sure it would have been the right thing for him to stay. However, on the principles that he was talking about, there's a I think it's a it's a Laura Kunzberg interview where he has to come sit down and say that he doesn't think gay sex is in. I felt really uncomfortable with the whole thing because I just thought, I mean, I think it's pretty clear the guy does think that it is a sin. I suspect that, uh, you know, I don't know how he could have possibly got himself into such a befuddlement um, unless he held that view. I I think that is just the most dreadful amount of mumbo jumbo hogwash, you know, curtain twitching nonsense. But it doesn't matter because what matters to me as a liberal is his actions, not his thoughts. And his actions, his voting habits had been fine. Now, there was one moment he abstained, but, you know, there was about sort of, I think, eight votes to look at different sort of amendments through the point. And he'd behaved commendably. In fact, I would say he behaved more than commendably. He behaved 
it's almost the pinnacle of liberal achievement is when you put aside your own wonky nonsense and you act to make sure that people are as free as possible, despite the fact that you don't like. Now, in that scenario, that is, that's you at the top of the liberal pyramid in that moment. And, I, and so for that, I held full esteem. You know, again, I, 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 he had a difficult position with the leadership because he didn't handle it very well, but that is a completely different issue. What's fascinating then is why couldn't he say it? And the truth is... In liberal circles, there are things which are unsayable, and one of them is gay sex is a sin. Now, I know why it is unsayable. I have plenty of friends really sort of passionately opposed to Brexit who during that election couldn't vote Lib Dem because they thought he felt that way. And for them, this stuff isn't far enough away, you know, in history in order to get relaxed about it yet. They're right to feel that way. I get it. But nevertheless, it's his actions that count, not his words. And the fact that he couldn't say it and keep that position suggests that that is, I'm afraid, liberals not living up to the principles upon which their ideology is based. So much I want to follow up on you, but we're running out of time. So I want to ask you a last question, which is, other than the things we've already talked about, in fact, I'm going to ask you two last questions. One is, what could what could happen, what could we do to change our public debates for the better? And the second is... Uh, when religious people speak in public, what is the most annoying things that they do or say that they might want to stop doing? So, I mean, on the first one, you know, I, I don't think this is going to get very far with, with you or with any of your listeners. But to, to me, it is to, to constantly ground things in evidence and reason. So there's a bit in... Um... I would really challenge that assertion. <laughs> no, I understand. And I'm, and I'm not saying that it's because of some, you know, because you're all faith-based and you're all going... I mean more that that as, is the anchor of all civilization. The point where you lose it is the point where the powerful just get to do whatever they like. There is nothing that is true. There is nothing that is false. There is no action there is taken. There is no action they haven't. Everything is lost in the wind. And at the moment, we're in danger of everything being lost in, in the wind. And I'm, you know, as sympathetic as I am to many of the sort of activities of sort of religious groups, I'd say they are not the first point I would go to to fight against the battle against reason. <laughs> I would, I am going to go back to, to you know, my, my basic tribe of, of liberals and right. rely on them. Well, and in terms of the way that the religious argue, I don't, for, for Britain, I really don't have any complaints at all you know, this would be a very different conversation if we were in the US, yeah. you know, but we're not. And here we don't. I have to say, like, I, I expect that when they cut to the Archbishop of Canterbury, either this one or the last one, I pretty much always agree with them. And not only agree with the content, but I usually agree with the manner, which is, you know, not very arrogant, not very demanding, not very hectoring, not very lecturing, but usually soft and accommodating and gentle and open. So, you know, I... I, I find very little to complain about in the Church of England and I'm constantly baffled by those who think that it is some kind of great tyranny over us because <laughs> if it is, they're hiding it very well indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our producer is Hussein Kazvani, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd love to hear what you think. Please do get in touch via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or sacredpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you loved, what you hated, and who you think we should talk to next. We'd also be really grateful if you'd rate and review us wherever you get your podcast and spread the word to your friends. Thanks very much.